Um, so I've only for three weeks been telling people that I am the campus minister at Trinity. Um, my wife and I, uh, my wife Ann Todd and I, were from this area, and we have three boys: Bo, Ira, and Olney. And I'm pretty sure one of them was uh, screaming a minute ago. So you'll probably hear them throughout this this time together. Um, and uh, yeah, we are here this weekend for the last time, uh, saying just spending some time with our family before we move 12 hours away. So, very glad to be with you this morning. Today we're going to study uh, a very infamous and strange passage. Um, it is Jonah chapter 2, and it is the moment, if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible, it is the moment when God's prophet Jonah um, is basically praying from the bottom of the ocean, and then inside the belly of a giant fish that God has sent to save him from drowning. Uh, So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, and then we'll consider this passage together. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it to Jonah chapter 2. It should be about right in the middle of your Bible, maybe a little bit to the right. I want to begin actually in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. From the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and has been given to us out of his great love for us. Let me pray and ask for God's help this morning. Our Father in Heaven, we are very grateful this morning, um, especially on this Father's Day, to be able to call you our Father. And Father, we ask that um, you would indeed be with us now, um, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit, and that you would open our eyes to Jesus. Uh, Lord, we pray that even in a passage that's a little bizarre, um, such as this one perhaps to our 21st century ears, Lord, that you would speak very loudly to us of your unfailing love and of your un matched power. And Father, we ask that um, for the sake of Christ and for the good of your church, you would open our hearts and that you would open our eyes and that we would hear Jesus and see him more beautiful this morning than when we first entered. And we ask these things in his holy name. Amen. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is stuck. He is stuck in his crummy old hometown of Bedford Falls, and he is desperate to shake the dust off of his feet and to go see the world. From the time he was a boy, all he could think about was leaving home. 
going on adventures far away to see what faraway lands had to offer. Now, opportunities in the movie arise for him, for him to do this uh, as a young man before going off to college and as a new husband with an extravagant honeymoon plans, even as a potential businessman uh, with a venture possible opening far away. But time and again, he finds himself stuck in the very place he least wants to be, Bedford Falls. And no matter how hard he tries to get away, he finds himself back home in the very place he is trying to run away from. And the, the prophet Jonah in this passage is in a very similar situation. As you read Jonah, you see that he has been trying as hard as he can to run away from the Lord's presence. Three times in chapter 1, it says Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. Now, why was he doing this? That doesn't seem very wise. Was well, because the Lord called him to do something that felt impossible. To love his enemies. To share God's word with Israel's arch nemesis at that time. Which was the evil, ruthless, godless Ninevites. Jonah does not want to do that. So, he runs from God's command. Which is always, simultaneously, to run from God's presence. So Jonah runs until he cannot go any farther, the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. And yet, as far as he has run away, here in chapter 2, he finds himself once again back in that same old place he is trying to escape. Not Bedford Falls, of course, but back in the presence of God. And of all places, he finds himself there in the belly of a giant fish, but the Lord is right there with him. Verse 1, it says, Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. And you see, if prayer is anything, it is being in God's presence. Or as someone once wrote, prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. Now that's nice, right? That's great. But here's my question, the thing I want to talk about this morning. What led Jonah back into God's presence. You see, I want to know the answer to this because I resonate with Jonah a lot. I find myself, quite often, either intentionally or not, running from God's presence all the time. I often neglect prayer and quiet times in God's Word because, to be honest, it just does not feel productive or urgent. And there's a million things to be done all the time. Things to be done around the house, things to be done at work, emails to write, Instagram and Facebook feeds to scroll. But sometimes, like Jonah, I run from God's presence because I don't like or I don't want what God is calling me to do. So, what leads Jonah back into prayer and back into God's presence? Well, what we see are just two things. First, Jonah acknowledges his situation, and then secondly, Jonah acknowledges God's salvation. Pretty simple. This is not a complicated sermon. First, Jonah acknowledges his situation. And Jonah's situation is this. He is in desperate need of great help, because he cannot help himself. This passage flies in the face of the lie that God helps those who help themselves. If that were true, 
then Jonah would still be fish food at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. No, what we find in this passage, and all throughout the Bible, of course, is that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Jonah prays in verse 2 that he is in the belly of Sheol. Now, Sheol is not the fish's name, okay? Sheol is the place of the dead. He is saying, death is less than a breath away from me. For his prayer reached God's ears as he is sinking down into the bottom of the ocean. Now, how did he get there? Now, we we know the logistics of how he got there. We know that he was thrown overboard, right, if you're familiar with the story. But how does he actually get in this situation? Well, Proverbs 14.12 shines light on how. Proverbs 14.12 says this. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. You see, Jonah is in Sheol because he did what seemed right in his own eyes. It felt good and right to avoid those Ninevites, to avoid those people. It seemed good to put his to put his, to put his family, to put his country's needs above the needs of those wicked Ninevites, who would not long after this passage, not long after this time, destroy and destroy Israel and kill thousands of Israelites brutally. But in doing what seemed right in his own eyes, over what God had clearly told him in Scripture and in his word, Jonah found himself in the place of death. In a place of desperate need of rescue. You see, Jonah's situation wasn't that he just desperately needed rescuing from the ocean, from the ocean floor, but he desperately needed rescuing from himself. And it is only when he sees that he, not Nineveh, is his greatest problem that he finally turns to the Lord. Pastor Tim Keller, commenting on this passage, says, It is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. It is only when you acknowledge that you are in need of great rescue and that that rescue only comes from God, that you will ever find yourself in a place of dependence on God, and thus in a place of prayer. You will only come into the presence of God in prayer when you desperately feel your need of Him. So the question I have for myself this morning, and the question I have for all of us is, do you feel desperate for the Lord? Desperate for His mercy? Desperate for his healing power in your body. Desperate for his healing power in your family or in your community. Are you desperate for him to work in the hearts of those you love? I believe if we're honest, if I'm honest, most of the time I'm just not that desperate. I feel like I can do it or I can fix whatever is bothering me. That I can get over this situation, this obstacle with just a little bit more effort or maybe a little bit more studying, maybe a little bit more convincing, perhaps a little bit more time or money. So I don't pray, because why would I pray if I can solve the problem, right? 
But our situation is desperate. You cannot save yourself. You cannot save your children. You cannot save the world. The only thing that can bring healing to our world, to our families, to our souls, and rescue us is not more money, not more education, not better public policies, but the death and resurrection of the Son of God. That is how bad we needed rescuing. We needed the eternal second person of the Trinity to enter into the world, perfectly fulfill the law of God, descend into Sheol to bear the wrath of God in our place. That is how desperate we were. So our situation is truly desperate. And Jonah acknowledges this finally at the bottom of the ocean. And he acknowledges his desperation, and so we must as well. But secondly, Jonah acknowledges God's salvation. Jonah first acknowledges God's salvation in his infinite grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is this churchy word that we throw around a lot, but what is it? Well, simply put, grace is God's kindness to the undeserving. Twice, Jonah considers this grace in our passage by reflecting on God's temple. In verse 4, he says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then in verse 7, he says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Twice in this prayer, he considers the Lord's temple, which is maybe a strange thing to consider, but the temple was the place of God's grace for the Israelites. You see, the temple is where God's grace, His unearned kindness, was on display for the whole world to see. The temple was where God had chosen to make His home with His rebellious, selfish, self-centered people, and the place where He would make atonement or payment for their sins through sacrifices. These sacrifices were lived-out metaphors of God's grace, illustrations of how through an innocent, spotless life of another, God was going to make his people clean and make them righteous and be at peace with them. Jonah remembers God's kindness to the undeserving by reflecting on the temple. But secondly, Jonah acknowledges God's salvation in his infinite power. All throughout this prayer, Jonah is acknowledging that God alone is responsible for all the events taking place in his life, especially his own salvation. In verse 1, it begins by saying the Lord appointed or caused a great fish to swallow Jonah. In verse 3, it says, you cast me into the deep. But in chapter 1, we know that it was the sailors that cast him into the, into the ocean. But Jonah here acknowledges that ultimately it was the Lord's doing. In verse 6, Jonah prays, you brought me up from the pit. And in verse 9, of course, most clearly, Jonah says, salvation belongs to God. The power of salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to Jonah, not the fish, not by chance, but God and God alone. And so it is acknowledging God's infinite grace, working through his infinite power that leads him back into the back to the Lord in prayer. 
But we vastly underestimate both of these qualities of God all the time. We underestimate His grace when we believe God is pleased with me and others only when we deserve it. But God's grace is not His kindness to the deserving, but to the undeserving. It was at Jonah's worst, before he repented, that God sent a fish to swallow him in order to rescue him from drowning. And it was while we were still sinners that Christ entered the belly of Sheol to save us. Romans 5 says it really clearly. It says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. This means Jesus loved you at your worst. It means he loved you and loves you before you repent or make any move towards him. If he loved you then, in your worst moment, then why would he not continue to love you now when you continue to be weak and fail? To our detriment, we constantly anticipate God to be angry with us, to be disappointed with us, or to be apathetic towards us. And why would we ever come to a God that is disappointed in us? Why would we ever pray to the one we feel like is constantly frustrated and annoyed by us? We won't. But in Christ, God is our Father who looks at us with unchanging, undeserved affection all the time. He's constantly smiling towards you, not because you earned it, but because of Christ. Because the smile he has for his only son is now the smile that you receive from him. That is a face that you will turn towards in prayer. But we also underestimate God's power. Perhaps we don't, perhaps, perhaps we doubt or deny God's sovereign power because we're afraid of the implications. I know sometimes I do. Right? I have questions such as if God is so powerful, then how or even why? Would he allow so much pain or suffering in our world and in my life? And that is a real question. It's a really good question. And that's a question that you should ask Pastor Mike. But we must see that the Bible never wavers on God's infinite sovereign power over all things just because it's hard for us to comprehend. And this is actually really good news. Because God's sovereign power isn't simply a neat Calvinistic idea. It is a crucial element to prayer. Because why would we pray if God doesn't have the power to do something about the fears we have? About the problems we're experiencing in our lives? About our concerns for our children? Why would we pray to God if he doesn't actually have the power to heal us? Or have the power to deliver me from temptation. Or to deliver us from sin. But he does. He has the power over all these things. And he has the desire to do them. But we, And so we too, like Jonah, we will come home to the Lord in prayer when we acknowledge just how desperate our need is for rescuing. And also simultaneously how amazing God's grace and power has been displayed to us in Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Showing us that it was His joy and His power to redeem us from the first to the last before we ever even knew Him. And when you see both the grace and power of the risen Lord Jesus, 
you will no longer make him your last resort, but your first and your best and your only option in every and all circumstances. But maybe you're wondering, how do I pray? How do we actually come home to the Lord in prayer? Especially when we don't know what to say, or maybe feel like saying it. Well, let me simply encourage you today to just follow Jonah's lead. Pray the Psalms, because that's what Jonah is doing throughout this entire chapter. Listen to Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6, and see if it sounds familiar. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Does that sound familiar to our chapter? This is how Jonah starts his prayer. He starts it with a psalm. But then he continues to pray the psalms. He says, I cried out to the Lord, which is from Psalm 3, and Psalm 18, and Psalm 119, and 118. And then he says, you cast me into the deep, which is Psalm 88. All your waves wash over me, that's Psalm 42. I am driven from your sight, that is Psalm 31. Jonah allowed the psalms to be his prayer guide. He allowed, he allowed God's word to shape his words when he didn't know what to say. So, when you don't know how to pray, or maybe when you don't want to pray, just try reading the Psalms and let God speak on your behalf on how to pray to Him. Or as one person said, what is essential in prayer is not that we learn how to express ourselves, but that we learn how to answer the God who is always speaking to us. And the Psalms show you how to do that. George Bailey, in that movie I mentioned earlier, is given an incredible gift. He is given the opportunity to see what his home, Bedford Falls, would have been like had he never been born. All his life, he wanted to escape this rusty, crummy old town. And he gets a chance to see what the town would be like had he never been there. And it's terrible. What he finds is that Bedford Falls and the lives and the homes there are much better because he was there. So what he comes to find at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, I guess it's 80 years old, <laughs> is that the very place he has been running away from, the very place he's been running away from, is actually the very place he has belonged the whole time. It is his home. It is where he belongs. Jonah has been running away from God. And so do we in one way or another. But what Jonah comes to find is that the place where he belongs is actually the very presence of God. The whole Bible is about this. Did you know that? The whole Bible is about God coming to make a home with his sinful, selfish, rebellious people because he loves them. And so the whole Bible is about God coming to make a home with you. And that is where all of our stories are headed, if we are in Christ. It is to be, at one, finally, in that day, home with the Lord. We were desperately in need of rescuing. And God, by His grace and power, delighted in sending His only Son to deliver you from Sheol and from yourself, to bring you home. 
So look once more at how great of rescuing you need. And how great a rescuer God is in Christ to bring you to himself and to bring you home with him. And then come home. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage once again. I thank you, um, Lord, that you are a God who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for us. God, if you have come to make your home with us, um, the Lord Jesus, you tell us time and again that you are preparing a place for us. And we know that it is true um, in glory, yet, Lord, that is also true even now, that we can come home to you. And that is the place where we long to be, the place that we need to be. Would you help us to see that you are constantly inviting us to come home to you? And would you give us the strength and the desire to make our life with you um, and to invite others into that? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.